0: Now, I'm going to share something that might seem a bit ironic to you, because I understand that I'm probably one of the younger people in the room, but have you ever noticed how the younger generation always thinks themselves better than the last? C.S. Lewis calls this chronological where the generation that comes behind, whatever generation is there, always thinks of themselves better than the generation that came before them. And this age-old reality will continue to happen. My kids will think that they're better than me, and their kids will think that they're better than them. And if you have children, you've experienced this. If you know young people, you've experienced this. It's just the way of life. But satisfaction oftentimes comes when you have an opportunity to remind the younger generation of who is boss. (laughs) And as many of you, I don't think I'm, am I pulling from this mic here? And as many of you probably know, I used to be a youth pastor, well, it was always ironic for me because I started off in youth ministry rather young. In fact, I started working in youth ministry at the prime age of. 18 or 19, it was around 2008 and 9 that I began working for a church. But I remember when I first officially became a pastor, and that was in my mid-20s, and I was pastoring a youth group. And as it would happen in almost every single youth group, despite the fact that I was probably not even 10 years older than some of these kids, they would make so many jokes about me being the old guy. And I would laugh at this because I'd be like, man, I'm only like in my mid-twenties here. I'm not old at all. You guys are just young bucks. But they would always think that they were better than me at almost every single type of thing that we would do. And it was almost always the boys that would do that. Now, I get it. Sometimes there would be some lighthearted hearted Fun competitiveness, but every now and then you would get the most obno- I'd get the most obnoxious students that would be arrogant and distracting, and then in addition to that, fall into the trap of chronological snobbery. So I had a very simple strategy to deal with this problem, and that strategy wasn't prayer. No, it wasn't prayer at all. It was figuring out a way to hurt them with still not losing my license or going to jail. <laughs> and that's why God invented paintball. <laughs> so I would schedule various, at various times in the youth group opportunities for us to play paintball. And I would tell the youth that we were playing paintball, and as you could imagine, the boys would be as excited as can be because it would be a fun gathering of boys to be able to shoot one another and nobody have permanent injuries, although sometimes I felt like I was planning for some. So we would schedule paintball, and I remember on this particular trip of paintball, I had three boys in particular that were just so strong-willed in their conviction that they were going to destroy me. And I would make sure that I wouldn't say a single word. I would just let them talk, and let them talk, and maybe I would say a thing or two just to continue to stroke their ego into thinking that they were going to destroy me. And I remember it was this one boy that kept on talking and he just wouldn't stop and he respected me very, very little. Well, when we showed up to that paintball field, I put on my gear and what I didn't tell the kids is that I grew up playing competitive paintball in different tournaments and would even visit the World Cup just to be a a, a spectator because I was so invested into the sport. So I had all the gear, I had all the moves, and the minute the light went green on the field, I would rush out there, I'd slide, I'd start getting my paintball gun, I'd shoot around, I'd go around the corner, jump, dodge, do all these things, hop, and they just did not see any of it coming and I lit the floor with all of them. In fact, I told them, how about we do this? We'll do you eight versus me, and it just got more and more ridiculous. It got so bad that I literally had to take a pump gun because I would destroy all of them. One boy came with almost tears in his eyes, saying, Pastor Kevin shot me six times in the back, and it hurt so much. Probably the best moments of ministry came out of those fields. But what was great about it was the humbling opportunity. And what was so even better is oftentimes after these little moments, which really were team building in some ways, I gained their respect. I, I was able to speak and influence them better because of a situation like that. And I'm really thankful for those opportunities. But today we're going to be looking at a story where confidence plays an important factor. And in some ways, this story looks reversed from our experiences, but I believe that in it, we will see great truth. So again, if you can, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7 as I regain my breath from my little stunts there. So it says this, the Philistines in verse 3, I'm starting in verse 3, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So, what's going on here in Scripture? Obviously, the author in this moment is going to great detail to describe this individual named Goliath, and it's, it becomes very obvious whether you know what a shekel or a cubit is, that this figure, this person named Goliath, is what? a warrior, and not just any warrior, but a huge warrior, someone that would stand in opposition and would kind of, if you were in a room, that your eyes would be immediately drawn to him because this is a big guy who's wearing all the right equipment and is so big and so powerful and so renowned that he even has a shield bearer that accompanies him. If you didn't know, Goliath, it says that he was six cubits, and most likely in today's world, that would mean that he was roughly eight or nine feet tall. To put things in perspective, the tallest man in American, or in world history, I believe, is a gentleman by the name of Robert Wa- Wadlow, hopefully I'm saying his last name correctly, and this is a picture of him here. Ro- Robert stands at eight feet 11 inches, so just shy of 9 feet. And right next to him in that picture is a picture of his father who probably would have been of an average height. So I'm not sure quite what his father's height is, but let's just assume it was somewhere around the, t- uh, the height of 5, 10 to 6 feet or so. So as you can see, standing next to his own father, his father looks like what? A child. I mean, he, it almost looks like he's double him, and, and he almost is. So Goliath would have been a huge man. And between the helmet and the coat of mail and the bronze greaves and the bronze javelin, he would have been holding on to hundreds, probably 200 pounds or so, worth of equipment. Just his coat of mail probably was around 126 pounds pounds. So scripture wants us to understand that this person in front of the army of Israel is a big guy, is a guy that looks the part of a warrior and in every way, shape, or form is. He's the guy that turns every head in a room and makes you very quickly realize don't mess with him. There's probably very few people in the world that could even give this guy a challenge. But what happens next in this story? Because you see, Goliath is opposing who? Goliath is opposing Israel. And he stands against Israel. In verse 8, it says that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel give me a man and let us fight each other on hearing the Philistines words Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified were dismayed and terrified and I don't blame them why would you If you saw this person in front of you, being terrified in some ways is the right response. I don't know about you, but I'm not a very big guy. And while I might be a decent paintball player, if it comes to -to hand-to-hand combat against a guy that's over eight feet tall and has the frame to be able to hold a couple hundred pounds worth of armor and spears and equipment and is seen as a champion and a warrior, I'm walking the other direction. I'm be like, oh, what, me? No, no, we're good. I'm cool. Whatever you say, I'm good with. That would be my attitude. So, of course, Israel is dismayed because they're looking at this guy in the natural and they're thinking to themselves, what are we going to do? And Goliath is so confident in his ability to fight and to fight specifically well, that he's willing to put the entirety of the future of two countries between who's the winner of what he's creating as a death match. So between this death match, Goliath is so confident that he's willing to put his nation on the line and put Israel's, Israel on the line because he's so confident that he's going to win. So it says in verse 16, for 40 days the Philistines came forward, every, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. What would have that felt like? Obviously, as each day progressed, what would likely happen is Israel would most likely become demoralized as each day has passed has that ever happened to you have have you ever had to do something and you've already felt discouraged by doing it and as time goes by, it just becomes worse and worse and worse. And it can even be with something positive, you know. For instance, you, you, you step on the scale and you don't like the numbers that, that come up and it kind of discourages you. You feel a little dismayed and you say to yourself, man, I really need to change. So what do you do? Instead of actually picking up a carrot, you just throw away the scale because <laughs> you don't want to see it as a reminder, But yet they were being confronted daily by this reminder of this Philistine who would go out, stand before them, and taunt them. And it probably got to a point, I don't know what day it would have come to, but it probably got to a point where the people would eventually just feel hopeless. Like there is nothing that could be done to save this situation. And of course, as we know from last week's message, if you didn't get a chance, I encourage you to listen to it on the podcast, that David is anointed as king of Israel, but yet he's not recognized as king yet by the people. King Saul is still ruling, but he's ruling in a way that the people are living in this situation. So what goes on in David's life? Well, David's two older brothers, one that I mentioned last week, Eliab, are at the battle lines because, you see, they were prepared to fight army to army, not champion to champion. So, David's father, Jesse, gives David some provisions. He gives him some food, some bread and some cheese. And I've heard some people say that this is the the first account in history of a a pizza delivery boy and tells his, his son to go off and deliver this food to his brother's Now, David goes there and he is seeing what's before him and he's totally shocked by the situation that he sees. He's so shocked that he leaves all of the things that he brought with him with, a, uh, with a, uh, a keeper in the army and then goes to just talk to the people and ask what's going on. And he can't understand the predicament that Israel has found himself in. So he begins to ask, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Now, I don't know about you, but that is a pretty confident guy, right? I mean, he's literally calling this Philistine, not by name, not champion, not Goliath, but he's calling him what? A disgrace. just He's almost talking to him, about him, like someone that you just need to scrape off your shoe, you know, gum that gets stuck to your shoe that nags you a little bit that you need to scrape off. And that's his demeanor. And it seems totally disproportionate to reality, to what a normal and proper response is. And he gets even worse with his confidence and, in some ways, in saying, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, I think it's easy for us to to smirk with pride in some ways in hearing David's boldness. Why? Well, because, let's face it, I'm telling a story that you already know, and pretty soon here you're going to learn what happens between David and Goliath. But if you put yourselves in a situation where for 40 days the people are just being demoralized into a complete hopeless state, to see this man, this young man come and in their eyes maybe even look like a boy and start to talk about this champion as, in some ways, as this disgrace or this uncircumcised Philistine, it would have looked completely pathetic. It would be similar to My son, who's three years old, challenging me to a fight. That's really cute, son. Maybe I'll play along for a little bit, but sorry, you don't stand a chance. (laughs) And that's what David, in some ways, would have looked like. He would have looked pathetic, not just in how he was talking, but in his physical appearance compared to Goliath. Now, we don't know the exact age of David, but most biblical scholars seem to think that he's probably somewhere in the age of 16 to 19 years old because it's estimated that service in the, uh, in the military at that time was somewhere around the age of 20. So he probably wasn't the exaggerated boy picture that we see oftentimes in cute little you know, children's church settings, although he could have maybe been younger than that, but most likely somewhere in that age. But by his contemporary standards, he would have been seen as a very, very young man. So he goes and he continues to just ask around and figure out what's going on, When in verse 28 it says, Iliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men and he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Pretty interesting, right? Would you consider your bro- his brother's view high of him? Of course not. His brother obviously thought very little of David, which I think can be a sermon in itself about how we need to be careful with the company we keep or we need to recognize that sometimes people see the reverse in us than what is actually true. And in the case of David's brother, all David's brother saw in him was a prideful, cocky little snot. When in reality, God was setting up the stage for something rather miraculous. So what happens next is David ignoring his brother, which again, that could be a sermon in itself on how sometimes we need to close our ears to people that have nothing true to say about who we are as an individual and turn from those conversations, he goes on and he continues to talk about what will happen to the individual who's able to slay Goliath. And eventually, word breaks out to King Saul, and King Saul overhears the discussion and calls David in to talk to him to see if he could be Israel's champion. And it said, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight. Saul replied, you are not able to go out to this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and and he has been a warrior from his youth. Now listen to what David says in verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. "'When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, "'I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. "'When it turned on me, I seized it by by its hair, struck it, and killed it. "'Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. uh, "'This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them.'" Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine and it's here that I kind of want to take some time to bring some application and bring some concrete truth into our lives. You see, I think this story is oftentimes misunderstood or at least it's misapplied. And the reason that I say that is because typically we look at the story of David and Goliath and it's the the tale of of a little guy beating the big guy. And sometimes people will will go into thinking that this story is a proof text that you can defeat anything that goes your way way. That all you need to do is just believe and you can get it done. And that is not at all what is being communicated here. You see, up until this point, David and his confidence in the situation would be, it would almost seem like he has the pride of those students in my story, right? Where he's just a chronological snob that thinks that he can do more than he's capable of. But we see two very key things come up from his description on why David believes he could beat Goliath. And what are those two things? The first one is actual experience. He has actual experience defending what? His sheep, his flock. And I'm not talking about coyotes. He shares off critical experience of times where he's literally had to take out a lion or a bear. Now, before my accident, I was a pretty good runner. My strategy is if a bear comes, is to pray that there's another person that's with me and just run faster than them. That's my strategy. I don't know if it'll work well, but that's all I got. The other strategies that I've heard is to just ball up in a fetal position. I would probably do that willingly as well and just cry. David's strategy in this situation is, all right, let's go. (laughs) And that just seems wild to me. I, I, I almost find it hard to believe, but people have done it throughout history, where they've taken on the apex of the apex predators, In order to defend their own lives or to defend a situation. And David is saying that I have that kind of history behind me. I've experienced the feelings of being in a situation where I am responsible for this sheep. Where I am the caretaker over this flock. And in order to get to this flock, you have to get through me. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to defend what I have. And I find that completely amazing, and I think the reason why David stands apart in history, or at least within Israel's history, is because David had the unique profession of being a shepherd and constantly having to care for an animal that was, in some ways, always trying to commit suicide every day. Because if you ever hang out with farm animals, that's what you feel like your job is every day. You wake up and you're like, all right, how do I figure out not, uh, for my animals to not kill themselves today? And that was David's job in some way. So he understood in, in, in a parallel sense, God in a very unique way, because that is oftentimes God's relationship to us, right? Where we are his sheep and he is the great shepherd. So David understood the heart of God when it came to what it meant to be a protector and a defender for those that couldn't defend themselves. So I think that's the first reason why his confidence is is more than just pride, but it's actual pride or, or warranted confidence in his own ability. And the second one is probably more important than the first, and that is what? His confidence in God. His confidence in God. Because notice this, that when in this paragraph from verse 34 to 37, when he shares his experience of taking out lions and bears, what is he, how does he frame it in the end in verse 37? He frames it by recognition of not his own abilities, but by saying, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine." This is so important, church. You see, God has given each and every single one of us a set of skills. And He's gifted us in such ways that we could do pretty remarkable things. You know, this, this, this past season, we had the opportunity to see the Olympics. And for those of you that tuned into that, you see some pretty remarkable things, do you not? When people are doing athletics, in the Olympics. But chances are, even if you type in, in, in YouTube, humans are amazing, you'll see reels and reels and reels of humans doing some pretty remarkable things. And in the midst of these remarkable things, I think it's easy for us to get caught up in our own ability. And you see, I think David could have gotten caught up in his own ability, but rather than getting caught up in his own ability, he recognizes what he's been able to do so he doesn't diminish himself because oftentimes we think that in order for us to not be prideful people, that we need to beat up on ourselves, and that is also a mistake. It is not a good thing. It's not a godly thing to belittle yourself. You know why? Because each and every single one of you carries the image of God. And in fact, it's, it's, it's still pride. It's still pride. If you spend time just saying, I'm just so unintelligent i'm just no good at anything i'm not pretty i'm not smart i'm not capable that is still a form of pride you know why because you're still making it about you you're still putting the attention on yourself and oftentimes people who do this repeatedly they're, they're still committing the sin of pride because they're just trying to keep the focus on themselves. But rather, what does David do? He's confident in who God made him to be, but he still sees God as the source of his strength. And that's where I think this picture of David and Goliath oftentimes gets misunderstood. This is not a narrative about whatever you want to do, you can accomplish. This is a narrative of Be who the Lord wants you to be. Be the person that God has created you to be. But to recognize ultimately this important truth, which is the big idea for today, is God is the source of our strength. I'll say that once more God is the source of our strength. What a contrast! between David and and Goliath, but David and Saul. You see, up until this point, if you've been listening each week, you would have learned that Saul, when he goes to battle, he does what? He goes to battle in his own strength. But when David is wanting to go to battle right now, whose strength is he depending on? The Lord's. So he does not see... Goliath as an enemy just to himself. He sees Goliath as an enemy unto who? The Lord's. You see, C.S. Lewis writes, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. You need to be careful, church, to not fall into the sin of pride, but also to make sure that in, in staying humble, that we look on to the Lord. That doesn't mean we can't have confidence. That doesn't mean we can't feel good about the things that God has made in us, because we bear His image. That's the imago Dei. We bear the image of God, so we need to be confident in who God has made us to be, but we also need to realize that God is the source of our strength. So what happens next? Well, it's pretty remarkable. What happens next is the people say, okay, Saul says, okay, you'll be our champion. And what Saul does in that moment is he literally starts to take off his own tunic and his armor, and he takes that off and he starts to place it onto David, which you know, I didn't think about this until I was writing this sermon this time, and it's funny because I've preached this message before, but you can always find more from Scripture. Have you, have you noticed that? You could read the same thing, and next year it's like you find something else. And I was just thinking about how in that moment, it's almost like God is symbolically passing the kingship from, from Saul to David by David now wearing his kingly armor and tunic. And so David is dressed in Saul's battle armor, and David says, this is too heavy. So he ends up taking it off, and he goes and he brings a pouch with him, a sling, not a slingshot, but a sling, which is most likely a cloth type or leather type sling that you can wind around and throw, and picks out some stones, some smooth stones, and puts it into his pouch. So David is presented as Israel's champion, and let's make no mistake, at this point in Scripture, you see nobody cheering. You see nobody in Israel hyped up and excited that David's going forward. If anything, everybody was probably like, this is our best. Oh man, I'll start cleaning out my closet now because I guess we're going to all be slaves. That is probably more likely what it would have felt like to see David move forward in the battlefield. But listen to what happens next, because this is just so amazing. It says in verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. Come here," he said, "and I will give you flesh to the birds and the, I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals." Listen now to David's response. David said to the Philistine, "You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in my own strength? No. In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defiled, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. I cannot read that without feeling a sense of goosebumps. Why? Why? Because David in this moment, while everybody is looking at the natural, while everybody is just looking at how big Goliath is, how much he looks the part, David is looking at the supernatural. And in the supernatural, he sees God, which is much bigger than David or than Goliath. And he sees a God who is going to be able to bring him victory because he recognizes his place in history, and he knows that his God is the greatest God of all gods out there. And he knows that he is going and fighting in his name and not his own name. And you see, this is the kind of ethos that we need to live by, church. We need to have confidence, but our ultimate confidence and strength needs to be where? In the Lord, so that when we are facing our situations in life, it's not just about of what we want, it's not just about what we want to see accomplished or how we want our lives to go a certain way, but that we live with a directional path of where God wants us to be and what God is doing so what happens next? Goliath starts to run towards David, and you would, you would think in this moment as Goliath is charging towards David, that David, that the rubber would meet the road, and somehow David would, would quiver back, but, but scripture says that he charges up and meets him. The confidences continue and he takes out a stone from his pouch, puts it on his sling, starts to swirl it out and throws it into the air. That, that, that stone starts to launch in the air, likely traveling around 60 miles per hour and hits him square on the button in the forehead. This, of course, knocks Goliath cold. As maybe you've seen on a baseball field, with a baseball going by and hitting somebody in the head can knock somebody down. This is a rock. And this rock knocks Goliath down on the ground. And he doesn't fall backwards because his, he's running towards David. He falls forward and falls flat on the ground. David meets him in his spot. He finishes the job. I'll spare you the details of what he lifts up, but you know. And I can just imagine Israel in that moment totally silent what just happened and then from that silence i can imagine them just going yeah <laughs> and total turnaround situation you see israel was preparing for what they were preparing for their defeat and just in that moment through david's Courage and charisma and confidence in God's strength. He turns the tide of the situation and Israel starts rushing out to meet the Philistines in the battle and to claim full victory because you see, where God is moving, there's a tendency and a draw for people to also want to move in that direction. See, one of the reasons, church, why... I want us to be spirit-filled people and why I want us to pray bold prayers and live, and live lives that are confident in the Lord because when you do that, people naturally want to join in. They naturally want to be a part of what God is doing. Filling this cha- these chairs in some ways, it'll be an easy task if we live with a confidence in what God is doing, and we allow others to join in on that. See, I want to be a part of that, and I know that when we do those things, we can experience those confidences. But church, more than anything, we need to look at this story, and as much as we need to cheer on a victory, we need to be able to experience our own forms of victory. Because the reality is is that many of us live with a very weak level confidence in our God. God is an add-on in life and He's not the shepherd of our lives. And the main big idea for today that we need to continue to remember is that our strength comes from God if there is a transgression, if there is a a, a sin in your life or a temptation that you are going through, temptation, something that's drawing you to, to want to sin, or a tribulation that you're going through, something that is just hardship in your life, you need to face all of those moments with a recognition of where your strength comes from. And that Your strength ultimately comes from above. From God. Where we are not able, He is.